Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Plain. M.I.P. With Massimella Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is the William R. Rose, 57, Professor of International Economics at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. He's the author of Austerity, the History of a Dangerous Idea, and currently, most recently, the co-author with Eric Lonergan of Angrynomics. We're going to talk about Angrynomics this morning with Mark Blythe. And wait a minute, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Is that yeah, right? you, you got it. You got it. Absolutely. All right. I like the first name too, man. Absolutely. I'm, I apologize for that overly long title. Every time I hear it read out, especially when you get to the 50, 57 bits, I'm reminded of the old Heinz advert. Remember how Heinz used to have 57 varieties? Yeah, I'm, I'm like I'm the Heinz beans professor. <laughs> how, how are you, buddy? How's everything going uh, where you are? I'm up in Rhode Island, and sometimes it's nice to live in a small place that everyone forgets about. Okay. Okay. Well, that's cool. Um, angrynomics. Well, well, let's start at the beginning here. What are angrynomics, Mark? We're living it, Mark. Angrynomics is when the majority of people in a country no longer believe that the economy actually benefits them. It's that simple. It's the feeling that when you go out and do your work, someone else is taking the profits. It's the feeling that no matter how hard you try for you and your family, there's always somebody else who's taking away the rent instead. It's the feeling that there's something beyond your control in terms of the way the economy is run and governed. And it doesn't matter who you vote for. It's always the same for you and for people like you. And that's mm-hmm. something new, and it's causing a lot of trouble in our politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're seeing it, as you say, we're experiencing it 
right now, aren't we? And and it, it doesn't it also manifest itself in some of the reactions uh, that people are having right now? Oh, clearly, absolutely. I mean, we focus all the time on on sort of like the white riot, if you will, on sort of you know Trump voters. In Germany, it's the alternative for Deutschland. In France, it's Le Pen, the National Front, all the rest of it. But this is much broader. This encompasses racial injustice. This encompasses economic injustice. There's a left-wing version of this. If you think about the people who are behind people like Warren, the people who were behind people like Bernie Sanders, yeah. and other left-wing political movements, this is an all-encompassing thing. This is not just like, let's try and understand why Trump voters are angry. That's one part of it, but this is a much broader canvas. So are people tired of capitalism itself, Mark? I think if you survey younger people, they say that. The question is, what do they mean by that, right? They're tired of an economy that doesn't work for them. I, I'll go that far. And what's behind that is really quite simple. I'll give you an example from the UK. I'm from Scotland, part of you know, the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom is now three times as wealthy as it was in the 1980s, right? The economy is twice as big, and yet they have twice as many poor people, people in poverty, as they did before. How is that possible? If you think about the United States, 150 people at the very, very top own as much as the bottom 150 million. I mean, just astonishing figures. The, the, the figure that I came across, Boston uh, Federal Reserve published this a couple of years ago. It's a report. You can go online and find it. So they looked at the, the sort of the average net worth of families in Boston. And he looked at white families, and this tells you everything, right? So the average white family, the median to be technically correct, is meant to have an average, uh, average net wealth, assets minus liabilities of $247,000. Now just go walking through Dorchester, right? Or Chelsea or Eastie, and, and you tell them, that's just nonsense. But what makes that such a high number is when you love all white people together, guess what, the vast majority Pretty much all the rich people in the world are white. So that number gets inflated because you've got all these people at the top that have got huge amounts of wealth. Let's do the same thing for black families in Boston. I'm going to ask you a question. When you take all of the assets of those families, all the liabilities of those families, and you net it out, what do you think the figure is for black families in Boston when whites are 247,000? Mm. Pick a number. Um, what, a tenth of that? Not even close. Eight dollars. Eight dollars. Boston Federal Reserve Zone figures. Wow. That's how fractured and unequal our society has become. Now, if that just you know to quote Cornell West on this one, if that doesn't make you angry, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Right? I mean, that's what's underneath all of this. And this is why everybody's experience of these injustices are different, but they're pushing in the same way towards an anger about our politics. But it seems to me, though, that part of the disconnect is that a lot of the anger that we're hearing from the right, and we can stipulate that there's anger about the economy, but why are they and how are they able to focus more on issues of race and to appear more racist, or in fact, to be more racist, than to focus on the economy itself. It, it doesn't translate as much as anger about the economy as it does about anger towards race. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is 
to a certain extent, an American peculiarity in the sense that the position of African-Americans is historically unique. No other developed country has a population which has been held in a kind of legacy of slavery in almost a caste-like situation like India. No other developed country has that. So there's part of that which is, in a sense, hardwired into this. And if you look particularly at southern states where racial exclusion has been the way that politics has been run for generations, in a sense, there's no surprise. Think of this as the plumbing, right? Where do you think the water is going to flow? It's going to flow down the easiest channel. And what is the easiest channel for American politics, particularly since Nixon's southern strategy in the 1970s? It's been down race every time. You know, let's just remember where Ronald Reagan gave his I'm running for president speech, right? right? Let's think about all the sort of dog whistles that's been going on. So in a sense, the current moment is taking that and amplifying it because those channels are already there, right? But there's also something else which we see in the uh, civil rights uprisings of the moment is that black people in the United States have said, no, enough, done. We're not doing this anymore, right? And there is a majority, not amongst Republican voters, unfortunately, which tells you a lot, but there's a majority of support for that in the broader public because what's been going on is ridiculous and it needs to stop. So there's a way in which there is an attempt to sort of join with this. And you see this in the way the Democrats are trying to basically work with Black Lives Matter activists, but at the same time don't want to go too close because it's going to alienate their white voters, right? But on the other side, the, the, the fact that the president, President Trump, refused to meet with any of the victims' families, refused to even address it as a real issue, tells you the way that they're weaponizing this in politics. As usual, it's basically turning this against each other. Yeah. I always uplift Dr. King's speech, Mark, at the Montgomery State Capitol after March from Selma, Montgomery. You know, they give us one speech to highlight. That's I have a dream. But to me, the more important and, and the most educational speech was there. And I don't know if you're familiar with that one. But he talked about the period after the Civil War where um, black and white were coming together in a populist movement to deal with economics and real working class issues. But then uh, someone came up with the diabolical and ingenious idea to feed, in his words, poor whites the imaginary bird of Jim Crow to deal with their economic issues so that the thinking would be, well, I may be poor and white, but at least I'm not black. And so the racism becomes that distraction. And as I read your book and I see what's going on now, you know, the million MAGA folk over the weekend weren't marching about the economics that their president help to um, deteriorate for mm -hmm. his failed response to COVID. I mean, if we're talking about anger, we would deal with that. But instead, like you, you said, you know, shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Well, we're just going to go to the racism. Mm -hmm. You know, have, are you familiar with Dr. King's speech and, and what he was saying? Then I'm sure you're familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Also, I mean, you know, Du Bois wrote about exactly the same thing in Black Reconstruction. I mean, this is sort of the, that's, that's the, that's the book on that period. And that's exactly what happened. The question is, though, why does Southern politics, because that's essentially what Jim Crow was, continue to dominate? And that's where I think we have to have a broader lens, because this is also what you see in states that weren't part of the old Southern coalition. So what's going on with that? And part of this, if you look at the electoral map, right, this is to change the subject in a very different way. But let's think about it this way. 
what is it that when the Democrats talk to white working class folks, what is it they signal to them? So I got some uh, working class friends here in Providence, and I said to one of them, what, what do the Democrats mean to you? And this guy's not a died in the world Republican. He's like, doesn't really think about politics. And uh, he says, honestly, Black Lives Matter, trans rights in the environment. And the environment's just an excuse to give minorities a job. And it's like, okay, stop. Where do you get that from, right? What exactly is your imaginary where you get this stuff, right? And he says, well, you know, I've got family that live in X state. And what is it they do there? Everything that they do there has to do with oil, fracking, chemicals, logging, all this sort of stuff. Everything the Democrats who live in the cities, who care about urban folks and urban issues, don't give a shit about. So there's a way in which the whole of our economic structure is becoming such a way that the Republicans run steel, oil, coal, gas, all the stuff where white working class guys traditionally have got a little bit more wages, all of which the Democrats who want to, sh want to shut down because they call it the environment. And then who are the Democrats' allies? Minorities. So you can see how it's really easy to stir this pot. You mm -hmm. can just put all those ingredients in the pot and stir it up. And that's exactly what those politics are. Right. And then you and again, when you look at the electoral map, it, it disproportionately favors those the southern strategy, those southern states, those Republican states where those industries are. Absolutely. Uh, think about like think about the deep south. What is it you've got on the Louisiana coast? You've got Cancer Alley. What is, why is that? Because you've got all those chemical plants down there. You've got the refineries, all the stuff that makes the carbon economy go. What is it that excites the Democrats? The Green New Deal. That's, a, that's basically pointing a gun at their head. Yeah, yeah. So look, man, I just started. I'm halfway through the new season of The Crown and watching Margaret Thatcher. Oh, my God. Right. And, it, and, and you know, it brought my PTSD back because she, <laughs> she was out of control, mm -hmm. you know. And but when you look at you mentioned Reagan when we first started talking, when you look at the two of them, they kind of helped get this ball rolling oh, yeah. to where we are today. Right. Totally. Absolutely. The whole project for both Thatcher and Reagan was let's put it very simply to restore profits and now let's let me unpack all this right back in the 1950s and 60s when you had well, across most of the rich world it excluded african americans until the very end when you think post-civil rights right but essentially it was the white working classes farmers and the urban elite this is sort of like who runs politics and the deal was that if you were in a union Profits went up, wages went up, and there was a cost of living adjustment between the two of them. Now, the problem is if you basically run labor markets, if you create a lot of employment, if you take half a million people and put them in Vietnam to fight a war, which we do every 10 years, and you waste all that money, you're going to end up with an incredibly low level of unemployment, which means wages are going to go up and up. Eventually, they outstrip productivity. What do you get? Inflation. Why do capitalists hate inflation? Because it's a tax on profits. If I'm investing for five years and I expect to get 10% back on my money and inflation goes to 12%, I might as well take the money around the back of the house and torture. So what were Reagan and Thatcher there to do to restore the real rate of profit? What's the first way that you do that? You bust up trade unions. Then you liberalize finance. Then you integrate markets so that we're all competing against each other. Then you globalize. This was exactly the script. And the script was incredibly profitable for those who have assets. 
Hence why 150 billionaires own as much as the bottom half of the United States, right? This was a, a this was boom. The plan was executed beautifully. The worst of it was by the mid 1990s, our supposed allies, the Democrats, the Labour Party, the German Social Democrats, they were the ones that hooked up to the plan as well. They, they took the red pill. They went straight down the matrix and did it yeah. even better than we did. Yeah. And that's what we're coping with the consequence for, because a lot of it comes down to the whole build up to 2008 and the financial crisis. And the fact that people like us no longer believed the people who were meant to represent us, who were meant to be on our side. We right. knew they were more com they were more comfortable with bankers than they were with preachers. Hello, you just said something. And well, I'll take it. I'll I'll add bankers as a subcategory. You know, even in the current election, the reason the election was so close, and this is a whole another conversation, is the reliance to the greater comfort with the consultant class oh, yeah. rather than preachers. You know, so but that's the whole another thing. But but you're right. It's it's the it, the Democrats, the Labour Party, uh, the greater attraction, and we saw it with Bill Clinton. Yeah, it's totally. it, it was a surrender to the Reagan Thatcher way of life. We can't compete with that, so we we can't beat them, so we might as well join them. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. why we're where we are. But but speak to this too, because I think this is an important piece. Busting the trade unions. Now, um, labor unions were always with Democrats, but somehow what Reagan was able to do and presumably what Thatcher was able to do in Britain um, was, I guess, by attaching themselves to some of these other industries that Republicans are now a part of. It has, while it hasn't necessarily busted the labor unions, it has divided the labor constituency along racial Absolutely. geographic lines, has it not? It certainly has. And if you think about the Koch brothers, right, the ones right. who put all billions into politics, etc., what is it they own? They own heavy industry. They own oil. They do all that sort of stuff. And the workers in those industries tend to be better paid than everybody else around them. But in comparison to what they would have been paid if they'd still been in a union, they're paid a lot less. So it's always a question of relative gains, right? To go back to Dr. King's point, so long as I'm better than that guy, I'm doing okay. And right. that is the way that these labor markets have been segmented right from the start. I'll, I'll tell you a little anecdote. I, I come from Scotland, and when I first came to the United States, I moved to New York. So I'm in New York in 1991, and I ordered a pizza. Uh, it's the first time I'd ever ordered a pizza in my life. I was quite excited about this because we don't do that stuff back in Scotland in those days. So I go to the door and then there's this guy who's standing there and he's from the south of Mexico. He's a distinct ethnic group from the south of Mexico. And I was like, wow, that's kind of weird. And then I go down to the pizzeria and I find out they're all from this one part of Mexico. And I'm like, Mexicans, pizza? Like, it doesn't just. And it's just this window I start to get into New York on the ethnic division of labor that the United States runs on. Right? I mean, it's all over. You just need to open your eyes to it, right? Basically, there are jobs that white people do and there are jobs that minorities do. And this is, I, I've been here for 30 years. I see this every day. You just need to open your eyes to it. The notion that we're all in one labor market, it's just nonsense. It's simply not true. Yeah. So, Mark, what do we do? What are you and Erica proposing in terms of a, a better economic structure? So it's hard, very hard for the United States, not just because of federalism, not because of the legacies of Jim Crow and institutionalized racism today, but also because you've got a Senate and that Senate is gerrymandered to death, 
right? I mean, I saw figures recently that about 30% of the population effectively tell you who's going to be in the Senate, right? I mean, this is just ridiculous. And of course, the Supreme Court has made this worse with Citizens United and all the rest of it. So it's a tough one. But there's certain things that I think you can do. So the first one is this. Nobody likes taxes. And the reason nobody likes taxes is because we actually do pay a lot, mainly because corporations pay none. I'll tell you a little statistic, which I tell people, which they don't believe, but it's absolutely true. In 2010 and 2012, I paid more taxes than General Electric. I can assure you, I am not an incredibly wealthy guy. Look around. Does this look like Caesar's Palace? Right, no. So... <laughs> They're not paying, which means that we are. So you've got to come up with a solution that isn't just about taxes. And people say, but what about all the money at the top, right? Yeah, they hide it in the Cayman Islands. You're never going to get it. So here's an idea that we've got that would make a lot of money for everybody without raising taxes. It's taken off of countries like Norway and Singapore. It's the notion of a citizen's wealth fund. So here's what we do. Remember when COVID hit in March, the stock market fell by 50%. Right, this happens right. every time. There's a crisis. Investors bottle it, they lose it, and they dump them. And they want to buy government bonds because that's called the safe asset. So what that means is government bonds basically raise in price and the, the yield, the interest rate on them gets really low. So what we should do, the government, rather than the Federal Reserve stepping in and just saying, lads, it's okay, I got your back, don't worry, nothing will fall, I promise to buy it, is we literally buy it. We buy it all and we put it in a big passive fund that the politicians aren't allowed to go anywhere near, and we keep it. And if you just do that, you basically make fidelity for the country and you make every citizen a titular owner of it. No politician gets near it. You let that run for 10 years, they are growing average of 6% a year in an environment with like very low inflation. If you did that with 20% of American GDP, if you spend 20% of the economy in bonds to buy all those equities, right? You could pay back the debt and you would have $4 trillion after about 10 to 12 years. Mm. So let's just wipe out all student loans. Right. Let's properly fund all pre uh, pre K education. Let's refund all public colleges. You could literally do that with that money. And I haven't raised a single cent in taxes. Right. So there's a ton of stuff we could do. The only thing is, which politicians have an interest in doing this? The Democrats. Basically, everybody in Congress is a millionaire. Right. Everybody. Mm. Remember that Kelly Loeffler moving her yep. portfolio around because you know she got the COVID information. I mean, just ridiculous, right? right? These people are not connected to the lives of others. They're not connected to the lives of us. You made the, the brilliant point earlier about they don't listen to preachers. No, they listen to polls. And that's why they get it wrong all the time. The Democrats were at their most effective when they had real people and real organizations all over the country. So they could actually feed that information back and say, no, no, this is what people are concerned about. Now you rely on polls where everyone lies. You're flying, you're flying a plane in the dark with no instruments, mm -hmm. and you think that you're in control. Mm -hmm. So we got to do better than that. So you can rebuild your politics in such a way that you take community seriously and you build deeply into that, and you invest in those communities. This is not rocket science. You just need to have politicians who got the desire to do it. Yeah, yeah. You, you also uh, are proposing um, that um, data companies pitch in as well, correct? Tell us about that. Absolutely. So we may be about to break them up. And given the damage that Facebook has done to American democracy, I think breaking them up is the least you could do. But there is another way, because people love these platforms, right? You don't want to stop grandma sending around pictures of the kids. So what is it you're going to do? 
Well, essentially what we suggest is every time that you get onto uh, Facebook or any of these platforms, when you're typing that in, you're actually creating the data that they then monetize. So in a sense, what you're doing is you're giving something like a property right in you, your data to them for free. They yep. give you the platform, but essentially like, come on, you're really just giving them what they need. You're the rocket fuel for their business. So what we should do is just get everybody to go to a website again, uh, run by the government, miles away from politicians, run by professionals from the tech industry with monitoring the whole lot, and you can opt in or opt out. And if you opt in, we auction the data to the companies, the same way we do with cell phones, right? When you want to give up mobile spectrum, 3G, 4G, 5G, we auction that to the companies and they bid billions of dollars to get access to it for a limited time. Why do we give our data for free? Imagine if like 150 million Americans said to Google and Facebook, no, no, you got to pay for it now. Well, they may say, well, you don't get your free search anymore. Okay, other firms will pop up and give you free searches. Don't worry. It's just a question of bringing them somehow to basically benefit us and not just the insiders that own the firms. Well, and, and, and I think, too, especially when it comes, that would include social media, too, well, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And anything you're giving data to, they should be paying a user fee. But and, but see, the thing to me, Mark, what social media has done, I mean, it's beginning to pile up more cons than pros for me because social media is being used to disinform mm -hmm. and incite some Absolutely. of the misplaced anger that we're seeing. And they're getting that for free. They're making uh -huh. a fortune off of wreaking havoc in the streets. To me, it's not as organic as it would be and wouldn't be this bad if you if people weren't able to use social media to disinform people so you got to pay absolutely and that's a great way of bringing them basically bringing them to be to, to, to recognize this because you can make them media companies right you can change them and tell them media companies whatever i'm not sure that really hits them where they need to be hurt they need to be hurt on their bottom line right yeah. that's that's what companies pay attention to so you know i've I, and as for, you know, weaponizing social media, my God, it's amazing. Here's what we've done. Ahmad, you know that there's a great documentary on Netflix about this, a four-part series called uh, The Social Media or something. I forget yeah. what it's called. But right. essentially, this is about dopamine in the brain, right? I mean, this is the yeah. same stuff you get when you take cocaine. So you're microdosing dopamine hits with people, and then you're giving them withdrawal. So how do you maximize your dopamine hits? You put them with loads of people who agree with them. So we all just find the bits of the media where we all hang out with people who only agree with us. And anyone who disagrees with you, it's like you're getting your dopamine withdrawn. So we basically created the worst after crash party in the world and generalized it across the country. It's just it's it's, it's bad for us. It's really bad for us. Yeah, it is very bad. And and we're just we're just at the advent of the, the consequences if this continues in the way that it goes. It's only going to get worse, and you and get worse. And you're right in terms of the the we're in speaking of majority and minority. You know, the minority controlling all the wealth. Um, the minority controls the information, mm -hmm. so that even the solutions you and I discuss that are principled and reasonable and would actually help are drowned out by you know the the dopamine. Crack houses. Yeah, of the mind. That's exactly put it. The dopamine crack houses of the mind. That's exactly it. 
we we have an intellectual conversation. Ain't too many people in an intellectual crack house. They they don't not too many people go there. You don't get a rush. Mark and I probably ain't making y'all high right now, but th- we've got some medicine you probably need to take uh, in this book, Angronomics. So yeah, yeah, that's man, it's it's a lot. It's a lot to be done, folks. We uh, we encourage you to check this out as this as debate is ongoing. Don't give in. So real quick, because you you do have some criticism for um, the Democrats and how, oh, yeah. and as we said, they take the red pill, they get to be milk toast. So it's really not enough, is it, Mark Blythe, for Democrats and Biden? And it's sweet. We got to heal. We got to bring them in. We have to kumbaya. And I'm a preacher and I believe in all that. But that alone doesn't get it done without putting some of these other tangible measures in place, correct? Correct. Absolutely correct. But here's the problem as they see it and they may be right. And here's the problem. So okay. just after the election, there was a phone call amongst a whole bunch of leading Democrats. You probably saw it written about it in the papers. And there was a, a Democrat from Georgia who's screaming down the phone, at basically the left activist wing, saying, you guys nearly cost us the election. We're wandering around talking about socialism and these grand plans, you know, blah, blah, blah. You cost us Florida. You know what? With a bunch of Venezuelans and Cubans and others who are, are genetically allergic to socialism, given what happened in their countries, they right. might have a point. Now, here's, here's the other side of it, though. Exactly, the left wing black activists come back and say, if it wasn't for us, you wouldn't have got Georgia. If it wasn't for us, you wouldn't have got Michigan. Now, that's also true, right? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Elections are decided by margins this thin, mm-hmm. right? So how do you build a party that can't say socialism or other progressive ideas? You don't have to say socialism, but bullshit one, right? But put big progressive ideas out there, right? And at the same time, you've got another one who's basically like, well, you know, if you do, you risk losing it. And the margins are not thin. So yeah. it's a tough one, right? If we go all in on the types of policies that you and I intrinsically just like, this is what we should do, we risk a lot. But if we don't do it, we achieve very little. That's right. What do you do? What do you do? It's it's tough. Well, you know, my own political theory is that in the Democratic Party, the vastness and diverseness of the constituency makes it numerous parties in one. And you have one party, it's almost like South Africa. You have one other party, the Republicans, that exclusively represents privileged white men. It doesn't even represent the million MAGAs who are out there. They think it does because of culture and racism, but it doesn't care about them either. Right. And if, if we could figure out a way to turn the Democratic Party into a de facto multi-party democracy, um, you know, then you expand the debate. When you have that diverse of a debate, and I think everybody has good points, you know, even the defund thing, the defund the police thing, because that was one of the things that was screamed down their telephone line. We shouldn't have said defund the police. Mm-hmm. Um, when nobody in the Democratic Party actually said that, that was yeah, I know. the Black Lives Matter move, but it got absorbed because the is black folk. Mark, our argument to black to the Black Lives Matter movement in the beginning, don't say defund, say reparations, mm-hmm. which speaks to what you were saying earlier about what's baked in in terms of black economics. Right. Um, we were left out of the early Homestead Acts and Social Security. Mm-hmm. So the middle class wealth America, the white Americans have, African-Americans never got a part of. 
Uh, we got almost 200 co-sponsors on a reparations bill right now, believe it or not. But now the question becomes in the, in the Congress, Democrats, the question, will, 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 will Democrats go forward with it or will that telephone call um, uh, uh, undermine? That's it. But 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 I think if see, we're trying to make the case, though, even white Americans, you don't improve an economy when a whole segment of the economy is impoverished and discriminated against. You create a scenario where everybody mm-hmm. um, uh, benefits, everybody contributes, I should say, to the economic structure. And, and that's the best thing. And to me, that sounds a lot more palatable than saying defund the police. And I know what they meant by it. They didn't really literally mean defund. Yeah, they meant stop but, sending the cops to do mental health calls. That's that's I what mean, it meant. It's not that simple. Right, right, right. It, it, it's true. But people people ran with it because you're Absolutely. right. It's easier to go Absolutely. down that line. So here's the, here's the issue on the reparations one. Let's go back to that kind of electoral problem they got. So what's the one constituency that used to be part of that multi-core of the Democrats that they've completely lost, right? It is the white working classes. Right. Now, unless you're willing to basically just chuck them all in the Hillary Clinton bucket of the irredeemables or whatever she called them, right, which is ridiculous, right? There's a reason that they know that they're getting stuffed by the current system, and yet they continue to vote Republican, right? What is that? What exactly are the Democrats doing that missteps that community so much that someone that used to be the, one of the core parts of their coalition is now just like not even part of it. If you look at the way the voting went this time, they drew a barrier around those people and said, we will build a coalition without you. The problem is there's 40 million of them. And actually, actually, no, there's 80 million of them. That's a big number to basically give up on because that's it used to be a huge core. My question is, how do we get them to realize that they're basically being fed bullshit and ultimately that they really need to come back into this party? That's the key thing. How do I get my friend to understand that when we talk about decar, we don't call it the Green New Deal, for God's sake. People have been programmed to think the New Deal was a bad thing, even if it was a good thing. Just call it decarbonization. That's what it is, right? Decarbonization is the greatest investment opportunity of the 21st century. Every other country doesn't have this bullshit about climate change. It's developing technologies, moving ahead, moving into hydrogen, doing all this sort of cool stuff. And we're just sitting there going, no, it's not even real. It's ridiculous. Well, think about all the jobs that will be created in that economy, but talk for real about it. Don't treat it as an add-on, right? Make that part of the core when you address that community. Do you want your kids to have jobs in the future? Because what you're in just now is done. How do we get from there to there? We need your help to do it, right? That's what we need to do. Yeah, good point. Decarbonization, I like that. Yeah, it's about getting rid of the carbon. That's all. And we don't hear that term being used in the main. No, we use Green New Deal, and I don't know why. It drives me nuts. Yeah. But the, New the, deal, the, the, the New Deal was 90, 90 years ago. Let's think about this. Right? If the last thing that, if we're trying to get people excited, you're trying to get someone excited about something that happened 90 years ago. Not exactly there in the consciousness. Right, right. And, only, and, among, only amongst liberals who went to college and studied political science and history, which is an awful lot of the democratic elite. And so... You use terms like decarbonization. That's hard to argue with, and and it's not so intellectual either to turn people off. That people, it's hard not. You had to be pretty, uh, I mean, a real blockhead not to get that decarbonization. 
and then it calls you out. Because basically, if you're against the organization, you really are saying, look, at the end of the day, I think it's all fairy stories. And ultimately, there's a giant conspiracy of lefties living off of grants, and, and, and then it just falls apart. Because the question is, why do even the Chinese think it's real? Folks, we've been talking to the co-author of uh, Angry Nomics. Um, get the book. Check out the book. Very interesting conversation. This has been great. And this will not be the last conversation. Uh, I would certainly hope not. With co-author Mark Blythe. Mark, we thank you for joining us on, on Make It Plain, buddy. I hope I've made it plain. <laughs> you have. You certainly have. Excellent. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.